Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Oh, God, it's buzzing already. That's a great start. I was, by the way, meant to bring along a copy of our theme music so we could play it uh, and everyone could kind of go, ooh, and uh, I totally failed to do that. And also, I did get everyone to cheer last year and it felt a bit weird and a bit pathetic. So if people want to make a bit of noise, just so that everyone knows that there are people here, that's great, but I'm not, I'm not going to fool you because I hate audience participation, so why should I put you through it? As they say, I should have brought the theme music. I've not done that. But what I'm going to do instead is leave a gap and tell our producer, Nick. Hi, Nick, if you're listening. Uh, this is where the theme music goes, and then I'm just going to start talking. So just imagine you're hearing like some train noises and stuff, and you'll kind of get the gist of it. I'm sure somewhere between some and none of you have heard the podcast. So you know the theme music intimately. But this is where it would go. Give us a countdown. Oh, oh, we're doing a countdown, are we? Five, four, three, two, one. Anyway, hello, I'm John Elledge and this is Skylines, the Cinemetric Podcast, coming to you this week from the crypt beneath London's Guildhall in the fashionable central London district at the New Local Government Network conference where we are recording an episode of Skylines about inclusive growth. I have an excellent panel with me to discuss that ma- the matter. Um, working from my left, we have Paul Nazarek, who is the Chief Executive of the London Borough of Ealing, and who, having just asked him specifically how to pronounce his name, I think I've just got it horribly wrong, so (laughs) great start there. We have Tamar Ray, who is the Project Lead for Procurement at Preston City Council, which I'm sure everyone, both in the room and listening along at home, will know has been experimenting with uh, the Preston model of local procurement to kind of try and keep more money in the local economy. And last but not least, we have Stuart Field, founder of Bread Fund UK. Bread Fund works with self-employed people who help each other practically and financially if they're unable to work through illness or injury. So we are going to talk, I'm going to sit down because standing up is starting to be weird. We are going to talk today about uh, inclusive growth and about how, I think this is kind of a topic that is very much on everyone's agenda at the moment. If you look at the sort of the economy, particularly of the Western world the last 30 years, it's grown quite a lot, but a lot of people haven't been feeling that. And there's a quote from, I think it was Lisa Nandy, the MP for Wigan, who said when, when she spoke to her constituents about Brexit hitting GDP, they said, well, that's your GDP, not mine. I think that kind of sums up the problem that although a lot of the top line figures suggest the economy has been doing pretty well, at least since about 2012, that's not really been filtering down to people very well. I'm going to start by asking each of our panellists a single question to give me their take on it, and then we'll go to them sort of individually with a few more specific things. But the, the, the question I'd like to, all of you to answer is, you know, what does inclusive growth mean to you? Who do you think is being excluded? Paul, let's start with you. First of all, thanks for, the, for inviting me to participate. It's great to be here. I think we talk about place quite a lot in local government. And really, place 
is a system that's got a number of components to it that need to work in harmony. So a place has got an economic dimension, jobs, businesses, incomes, distribution of wealth. It's got a social dimension. People live there, people learn there, people raise families there, children grow up there, old people age there. And it's got an environmental dimension. The parks that people play in, the green space, the pollution or lack of it. And it's also got a democratic and governance element, uh, which obviously the local authority is key in. And the core role of local government and communities is building a place where that system really works as a system, where the economy needs to work in its own right and be inclusive and egalitarian, but also needs not to produce negative social consequences and negative environmental consequences. And there are relationships between all of those different parts of the local system. So for me, inclusive growth means, yes, an economy that includes everybody to participate in the local area, an economy that everyone feels a stake in. But just as important is the relationship between how the, what the economy does in terms of its impact on families, on dignity, on access, and its implications for the local environment uh, as well. So an inclusive economy is part of an inclusive society and part of an inclusive environment. And it's all of that working together that makes a successful place. It strikes me that there is an, uh, an issue that, that might be an inclusive growth issue that you would see in, in a southeastern, particularly a London council, that you wouldn't necessarily in the north of England, which is house prices. You know, people are, are limited in the way they can interact with the economy because if it's so, Ealing will be an incredibly expensive place to live. And so if you're, bottom, if you're lower down the income scale in Ealing, that's going to be a problem for you to a greater extent than, than in somewhere like Bolton. Is that, is that part of the thinking around this as well? Well, that's a really good example of where I, I think the economy interacts with society in a way that isn't always virtuous and certainly has been a challenge for us in Ealing and across you know, many parts of, of London. So it's well-trodden territory, but is a house primarily a, so, a home that fulfills a social function, or is it an investment opportunity and a part of a market economy? Now, the truth is, it is both of those things. And as a local authority, we absolutely recognise we need private investment into our housing infrastructure and into our local infrastructure. But we also recognise that the just taking a pure economic approach does not meet housing need. That's why we're very proud that we kicked off a programme of building 2,500 genuinely affordable social council homes. We're doing that often with the private sector, but sometimes we're doing it ourselves because we recognise that the economy left to its own devices does not give us social result in a way that we would desire. Tamar, let's go to you next. What's your idea of inclusive growth and how does that relate to, to what's happening in Preston? Well, for me, inclusive growth is really about opportunity for all. That covers a wealth of things from fairness in, in terms of pay, in terms of work, jobs, good jobs, access to decent and affordable housing, access to skills. It covers a, a range of things that, yes, we're trying to tackle in Preston, sort of from the, the grassroots roots up by harnessing the, the wealth that we already have there, our, our assets, which are, you know, their land, their financial, their people. 
And so we're trying to, to use different ways of, of working to provide a more inclusive growth element for our citizens. Because at the end of the day, really what we want is a, a good quality of life for, for the people who live and work in Preston. I mean, who are you, who are you concerned is being excluded from, from growth and economic opportunity at the moment in, in Preston? Well, I think it's similar to, to what Paul was saying. So people who are excluded from, from the labour market for whatever reason, for people who perhaps are, are working in jobs that don't provide the level of income that, that they would like, so perhaps zero-hours contracts, or they're underemployed. And so, yeah, a range of people, really. Stuart, obviously you're outside local government, you're in the third sector, so I'm interested in, in your take on, you know, what does inclusive growth mean to you, you know, and who, who are you worried about being excluded? Okay, well, um, Bread Funds is by self-employed, for self-employed, so I'm a social entrepreneur, I've got my own business uh, that's a not-for-profit business. It's quite simple, really. Imagine there's this large group of people who all want to set up their own business, but only these people, this smaller group, can do it. So these people are being excluded. Obviously, you will get less businesses if only these people can set their businesses up and, and make them succeed rather than this larger group. So to me, that is what, that's what inclusive growth is, about finding ways in which these other people who are ex- excluded from one way or other can also be given the chance to set up their own businesses. And tell us a little bit about the origin of, of bread funds. You're inspired by, by the Dutch, is that right? Yes, Isn't that's it? right. So I used to live in the Netherlands, and in 2004, which was when I moved back to the UK, the people I worked with, they, they carried on, but the, the government stopped sick pay for self-employed people. We've never had that here. They had it there until 2004. So these people decided, well, what they'll do is they'll get together, put money aside each month, and then if anyone in their group is sick or injured, they can get money from this fund. And then after a while, they said, well, any self-employed people can do this. So they set up a cooperative to help other people do this. They thought, well, they probably set up about 10 groups within three years. Well, uh, they've so far set up about 450 groups with 19,750 members at the moment, which is more than the amount that's in your pack because it's growing all the time. My job is to see if it's possible to do the same thing here, really. This sounds like an example of what the coalition attempted to call the Big Society. If you ever remember the Big Society, that was fun, wasn't it? <laughs> Alarm clock Britain, that one was worse. So I guess my question is, why is this happening in the third sector? Do you think this is something, you are filling a gap in state provision? Is this something the state should be doing? Or do you think there is an argument for doing it outside? Well, the state has never provided um, sick pay to self-employed people in the UK. By contrast, in the Republic of Ireland, a couple of years ago, they have now introduced sick pay for self-employed people. So one way of going is for that to happen. Uh, Likewise, in Spain, there's also sick pay for self-employed people. Also, Switzerland's got another model where there's a standard sick pay system for employees, and self-employed people can opt into it if they want. So that's another possibility. But the idea of um, doing it in these small groups is that not only do you get financial help, but you also get practical help. For example, it was featured in The Guardian in 2014. Jackie Smates, she joined a bread fund. Within three days, she'd had a stroke. Now, she previously had a business as an events manager. After only three days having a stroke, people thought, well, if you went to an insurance company or if you started paying into a state scheme, you'd probably be too early to claim. But she thought, oh dear, I shouldn't claim. But the people in her in her fund said, well, look, Jackie, it's four people like you, you should claim. 
So she did claim. And then for the first few months, she had the full amount, and then she went down to the half amount, sort of 50%, because she was starting to build up a new business. She couldn't do a previous business, but she built up a new business managing holiday accommodation. She got help from the other people in her group, not just to get back to work, but also to get into a new business which was more suitable for her now that she'd had a stroke. Tamar, I want to go back to you and talk a bit more about the, the Preston model, as it's become known. You, you, that's twice now I've said that and you've rolled your eyes. I'm curious <laughs> as to why. So, like, t- tell us about kind of the, the origin of this kind of... First of all, what is, what, is, what is commonly referred to as the Preston model and why do you object to the label? I don't know that I necessarily object to, to the label as such. I think it's more, it's become known as that as a way of describing it. But actually, it's a really broad program of, of what we've called community wealth building, which wasn't a, a new idea, but it was about harnessing the wealth of our city, like I said before, about our financial, our physical, and our, our people assets. And one of the, the ways that we started to look at that was what more we could do with procurement. You know, what, be- what benefits could we, we get out of procurement rather than simply a, a contract to deliver a service or, or good. So that was where we started, really. But I think the thing with procurement was that as a district authority, we have quite a small procurement budget, so we couldn't do it alone. So what we wanted to do, rather than it just being about the council, We wanted to work with other institutions within the city to collaborate to see how we could use the procurement that that we all have to bring that wider benefit. And that's really how it started to grow and how how we became known for the Preston model. So talk us through it a little bit. If you're kind of, you know, the council is making procurement decisions, what are the factors that you might be considering other than, you know, the bottom line, as it were? Okay, so the things that we consider are around environment, the sort of distance travelled, also around the social aspects, people into jobs, skills, that kind of thing. So where you have, for example, the most popular one is the, the construction side of projects. You know, what are the construction companies when they're delivering a project for either us or for other anchor institutions? What could they do in order to support people into jobs, support people through training, support people perhaps through better wages. For example, we, we do encourage contractors to pay the living wage where possible because that's a, a strongly held belief in our city council. So those kind of different aspects. Are, are there visible signs that this is having a positive effect on the city's economy? There's certainly been an increase in employment and an increase in GVA. I think the thing that we recognise at the moment is we haven't done sufficient research to be able to say precisely how much of that is down to exactly what we've been doing through procurement and how many how much of that is as a result of other factors. There's always going to be more than one factor for um, a result. Please mind the gap between the train and the platform. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Paul, you, you've obviously got a council to run, but have you considered taking a similar approach? Is this the sort of thing that's ever come up? It's important we run an effective organisation, of course. Our community relies on us for that. But anybody who thinks that a well-run council is all you need to deal with challenges in the economy, challenges in society, challenges in the environment, don't get it. These issues are only going to get tackled together. And in each of those areas, the community's involvement and input is going to be central to doing it. And anybody who thinks the council has the answer and the council has the resources and the council is the only institution that's going to play a role in this is crazy. We can do all sorts of things to promote a sustainable environment, but it involves our residents participating in that sustainable environment in terms of the way they behave, in the way that they act. And ultimately... A strong society is about relationships within communities, between communities, and with our citizens and our residents. The council can get in the way of that if it's not careful, or it can enable that if it's smart. But absolutely, people expect the council to run an efficient and effective organisation. But beyond that, we're in partnership territory, and the solutions have got to be bottom-up. I'm just, I mean, sticking with the, the aforementioned topic, I mean, do you see it as part of the council's role to try and keep money within the community in the way that, that Preston is experimenting with? Do you think that's the kind of thing that a local authority should be doing? So, 100% applaud the hard work Preston's. Sounds like there's a but this. coming here. Well, I think it's horses for courses, isn't it? I don't think... A city, it makes sense in a city like London to think about the primary boundary for everybody being the boundary of the borough. And I don't think Preston think about the only, the only primary boundary in life is the boundaries of Preston City Council. Of course, I want public investment and the council's action to really be localised and benefit our local community. Of course I do. But what am I going to say to my staff who come from the EU, to take it off an example, or live in other parts of London, or live in other parts of the South East. What am I going to say to developers who are interested in investing in Ealing, but also have opportunities to invest somewhere else? So absolutely, we want to learn everything we can from places like Preston, in terms of making sure that the public investment that goes in benefits local people, and every public pound spent benefits local people. But we've got to be outward looking as well into the wider city, the wider country, and, and the wider world. So um, the phone lines are lighting up, as they used to say on telephones. I've got a good one from, from the audience uh, about this exact topic. It's, Inclusive growth needs a fairer economy. What appetite is there for ensuring local authority procurement spend goes to businesses which pay their fair share of tax? Some wincing from the panel there. Tamar, would you like to...? 
Well, I think procurement is it's about a fair process, isn't it? And if you have a, a tender out there and you have a number of organisations that, that bid for that, it is the best candidate or company that is going to obtain that, that tender. I think we should be pretty unapologetic about using council policy to promote the values of the local population and to promote the values of the local authority and our democratic representatives. So routinely, we think about our council tax collection policy, we think about our business rate policy, with a view to how can we reward businesses that are responsible and plough something back into the local area. So, of course, we've got to think about the law and about fairness. We absolutely have to do that. But we've got to think about who we are and the values that we represent. So I think we, we absolutely should lean, lean in to promoting our values through all the policies of the council and through all the decisions of the council. There's another question that, uh, that came in via, via this little buzzing device in my hand. This one's from Carla NG, who I believe are one of the sponsors of today's event and might just have an interest in this particular topic. Caroline Lucas said yesterday that government was asleep at the wheel on climate change. Can local government make the difference between leading clean and inclusive growth? So basically, should local government be involved in a sort of British Green New Deal, is I think the question here. Paul? Well, of course we should. We're custodians of place and key part of place in that system I described, economy, society, environment, a key part of that place is the environment. But if ever there was, a, if ever there was an issue that needs systemic partnership to make it work, this is one. So local government's got to play its part in this through encouraging recycling, through trying to support the circular economy, sustainable transport, cycling infrastructure. There's all sorts of things that we can do in local government to help with this uh, agenda, and we do. We certainly do in Ealing, and I know many parts of the country do that. But self-evidently, there's a huge community participation point to get this right too. We need our community to, to buy into this agenda. We've got a leadership role there. But ultimately, this is also a national and an international element. So of course, there's a local part to this solution, but it's not all of the solution. I agree very much so. I'm within Preston, in terms of things like having affordable energy, we are encouraging our citizens to, to look again at their energy to make sure that they're uh, getting the, the best price that they can. And we have linked up with another authority to help them do that and, and to support them with it. And likewise, in, in terms of open spaces, we're very privileged in Preston. We have a, a number of parks where we encourage people to, to go out and, and what have you. But I agree with Paul. We have a duty as a local authority to, to promote the best way in terms of, of climate and to, to work with the, the county council, which is just down the road from us, which has various responsibilities around the environment and, and waste management, etc. But there is also the, the national element. Um, I want to take this one because it is the most city metric question imaginable. To what extent can the physical geography of a local authority help or hinder the ability to plan and drive inclusive growth? Do boundaries matter? I love questions of boundaries. So, 
Paul, obviously you're, you're running an authority that's, uh, that's part of a much bigger whole. Boundaries do manage, uh, matter. I'm not, I'm not an economist, so I'll stray into territory here that'll, uh, where you'll, you'll uh, get some audience participation on this one. So there's something called a functional economic geography, I think, which I've learned about over many years through having colleagues educating me. And so there are natural geographies to economies. I find it interesting, actually, quite often in the national press, when is it? Maybe about once every two or three months, there's a story running that says people are leaving London because they can't afford to live there or quality of life or whatever. I think there's a different way to look at that, which I think in the southeast people might have some empathy with, which is I think London's getting bigger. I think that's what's happening, effectively. Because mm. what's happening is that all sorts of reasons that we've touched on do make it sometimes challenging for people to, to afford to live in London. So what they're doing is choosing, uh, not necessarily in circumstances that are totally shaped by them, to move further out from a family, thinking about quality of life for family, thinking about affordability of housing, but are still working in the London economy. So I think it's a good, I think it's a good example of where the transport infrastructure, the physical, the environment, and the nature of the local economy does have a natural rhythm and a natural shape to it. I think one of the, one of the things I learned when I was in Bolton is that Greater Manchester, I think, felt like the local authority boundaries of Greater Manchester were in a sensible fate, place in terms of the functional economic geography up there. And I think London is straining that geography mm. at the moment. I mean, that's an interesting point about the idea that people are not leaving London so much as kind of going to sort of far-flung bits of it. Because there is that statistic that London's population peaked in 1939 and then spent the next 50 years dropping. And I've often wondered if you kind of look at the sort of greater commuter belt rather than you know, the greater London boundary, whether that's actually true, whether the population really dropped that much or whether people just kind of moved to, to, to the excerpts, as it were. Tomar, like Preston's obviously... Uh, it's sort of easier to draw a line around an individual city than it is somewhere like Ealing, isn't it? Like, do you think that the boundary kind of affects your, your approach to growth? Yes and no. Preston is quite a small city and the centre of it is very concentrated. And just outside the city centre is the River Ribble, so you sort of fall into that. And, and that provides a natural boundary between ourselves and our neighbouring authority, South Ribble. But actually within... Central Lancashire, as, as we call it, the, the boroughs of Preston, South Ribble and Chorley, we, as Donna knows, we've always worked quite closely together in the three authorities. We have a joint local plan, so through the planning process we work together, the economic t development teams work very closely together. So in the sense of, yes, boundaries matter in terms of individual boundaries, but like I said, from the, from the three authority point of view, we work together very closely and currently we also have a, a city deal, an infrastructure city deal with South Ribble, and that is to build 17,000 new homes and create 20,000 new jobs over a 10-year period. So yes, boundaries matter, but we've found a way to, to work with others, and so that growth becomes wider. Stuart, from, from the other end of this, do you ever find yourself kind of like thinking you're going to be working with one local authority, but actually it's a completely different one because the boundaries in there? Yeah, well, actually, I live on a boat, okay, and my boat is actually moored in, in Hounslow. However, the front of the boat is just over the boundary in Ealing, as it happens. Does, does this affect your council <laughs> so, uh, tax? <laughs> so I pay, so they had to, the two councils had to. Uh, 
discuss with each other and it, to decide who was going to get the council tax, and it turned out that I'm afraid you lost out. And it's, ah. it's like it's a good got, job got I'm it. sitting here. Um, then, really. um, <laughs> so, um, and, and not only that, but Hillingdon is also very close. It's actually where all three meet. So what you get is we get that. Um, I do find that the, the place is near the boundary. Sometimes it's a bit unclear exactly. For example, which of Hounslow and Hillingdon should clear the rubbish out of the underpass that goes between the two of them. Is sometimes people say, oh, I would like to, to have a bread fund in this particular area in London. And I say, yeah, well, we could have one for the whole of London. Oh, but we, it's our borough sort of thing. Like, actually, you know, if you have something central, anyone in London can come together for the meetings. But people do seem to be still thinking in, in, in borough terms. Whereas when I lived in Birmingham before, Birmingham is one big council, enormous council, so that issue didn't really arise. You know, the fact that you were one side of the tracks is Bourneville and one side of the tracks is Sturchley didn't really matter. You know, people will go from one to the other and they won't think there's different areas in the same way, really. Let's take some questions from the audience, Ralph, shall we? <laughs> OK, come on, someone speak up. Save the audience from me. There's a lady there. So my question, we often talk about growth in terms of geographical boundaries, in terms of businesses, and my question is really around cultural growth. So that sense of place is often more fostered by how people connect to their place through their history, through their heritage. So how do we use local businesses and local authorities to foster a better sense of cultural growth? Sorry, can I just ask you to tell us where you're from as well? Yeah, my name's Beverly and I'm from Wigan Council. Excellent. Paul? Well, I think it's really important that local authority doesn't behave as if it's the sole provider, the monopoly provider of culture <laughs> in its local area. And that's true anywhere. Boy, is it true in London. I think it's, it's as intelligent for me to be having a conversation with the Tate or it is with our museums or our great institutions and so forth about how Ealing residents access those institutions. Is it is it for me to run a kind of local cultural offer? Of course, we need a good local cultural offer, and that's important, because particular points in life, people need a much more local offer. But we should really think about the assets of our places from a cultural point of view and think creatively, that heritage, that diversity. South Falls, part of Ealing, wonderful, vibrant, huge, you know, very multicultural, big Sikh community established after the, after the war. It's an absolute gem of culture, perhaps a bit underappreciated, actually. So I think you've got to start from, it's not about the council, where's our assets in the community, both our people assets, our institutional assets, and also then think about how can you connect your residents to other cultural opportunities that might not sit within the boundaries of the, of the borough. Back to the boundaries question again. From the point of view of, similar to, to Paul, in Preston, one of the, the big cultural events we have, we hold once every 20 years, which is commonly known as the Guild. And historically, that was where the, the Guild merchants received the right to trade from the, from the king. So every 20 years, it's known, as, it's known as the Guild. And from that, we have developed other um, cultural events where there's, there are opportunities for organisations to showcase the work that they do. And every year we have what's called Lancashire Encounter, which brings all the different communities and, and the cultural offer that, that we have together. We have the Mellor Festival. It's a really amazing place in terms of, of uh, the culture that not everybody knows about. Preston isn't necessarily known for its cultural offer. 
And at present, we've just received some funding from, from the Heritage Lottery to reimagine the Harris Museum, which sits in the centre of Preston. And we are consulting with the community as how best to, to do that. We want all their ideas so that we can take it forward. And in terms of the city, it, it sort of is central to, to part of the cultural offer that we have. Well, I think we got through an entire panel discussion and indeed an entire podcast without mentioning Brexit. So if you could all put your hands together and I think we deserve a round of applause for that. Yeah? You've been listening to Skylines, the podcast from City Metric, the New Statesman City site. It was presented and recorded by me, John Anage, and produced by Nick Hilton. You can find Skylines every two weeks on iTunes, Acast, or whatever other app you use to get your, your podcast. And while you're there, why not leave us a nice review to, to tell other people we're here? It, you know, it really helps people discover the show, and I'm a megalomaniac, so the more people I can get listening to this, the better, really. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.